All right, thank you, Kimberly. Yeah. All right, so the children are leaving, and it's also Cornerstone, so Josh is taking the teens with him as well. The rest of us today, we're going to turn to the book of Matthew, to the Gospel of Matthew. This morning, we continue our series called Exploring the Bible by turning specifically to Matthew chapter 6. It's a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. happens to be right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount as Matthew 5, 6, and 7, those chapters, are the Sermon on the Mount. And today, we find ourselves landing in Matthew chapter 6 to a particular text in which we will discuss today prayer. I did some research last week anticipating for today's message on the idea of prayer and the concept of prayer and learned this, that the word prayer or a form of the word such as pray, prayer, pray, praying is in the Bible mentioned 375 times. Now of those 375 times, sometimes indeed it is a prayer. Sometimes the word is just used to lead us into a suggestion. For example, what Paul writes in the First Thessalonian letter in chapter 5, verse 17, where he says simply, pray without ceasing. That's one way in which we find the word being used throughout Scripture. Another one would be that there are times when we have the idea of the prayer being suggested or that we should pray for a certain thing, but without the actual prayer being there. An example will be in Luke chapter 10, verse chapter 10, verse 2, when Jesus is speaking to disciples, he said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So there's some instances in which the word is used, but there's also times in which, yes, there is prayer. And I found last week that one scholar suggested there are over 650 prayers throughout the Bible. Now, some of those prayers can be short, sweet, and simple. Just one verse, such as the prayer of Jabez, which is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 10. Jabez called upon the Lord, so that's his way that he's praying. And he said, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. And, of course, it tells us that God granted his request. So that's a short, simple prayer, only one verse. But other times the prayer is actually given and is much, much longer. In fact, the longest prayer is actually found in John chapter 17. It is 26 verses in length. It is the time which Jesus is praying for his disciples. Many of them know his departure is near. So he's praying in those 26 verses of the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. And he's praying, so sometimes people call this the farewell prayer, or the high priestly prayer. Of course, there's other times when scholars look upon all the prayers, perhaps 650 indeed, in the scriptures, and we'll narrow it down to a top five. Interestingly, our study of Hannah, with Wednesday night, we got into 2 Samuel chapter 2, or 1 Samuel chapter 2, and found the first 10 verses of Hannah's prayer where she had received her son Samuel, and she has a prayer after she gives Samuel to the Lord. She has that prayer, and that 
among scholars in 1 Samuel chapter 2 is one of the top five prayers found in Scripture. But also, the text we look at today is in the top five of what scholars would consider to be the best among the Scripture. So we find today, we look at Scripture, we look at a model to lead us how to pray, and we find it written, again, the top five in Matthew chapter 6. We narrow it down to verses 5 to 15. So let's consider the text. Stand with me this morning, if you're able to. We simply stand to honor <clears throat> the reading of the word. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to read together then verses 5 through 15. So Jesus now speaking. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for to think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Well, then pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, Father, we come before you today, grateful, Lord, for the chance to be able to receive this reading. As we read it, Lord, we ask for a blessing to be upon it. But today, Lord, we want to turn our attention to what this model, this prayer tells us, to how we should pray, to how it can lead us into having a prayer in which you're honored, in which you're highly esteemed, respected. Lord, lead and guide and direct us today into the message time to let us better understand the text that we've read, but also see how it applies to us in our life today. So then, Lord, with that, we're thankful for what shall happen here today. Lead and guide now, Lord. Let this message be yours and the words be yours rather than mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, in the text that we just read in Matthew chapter 6, again, verses 5 through 15, concerning prayer, undoubtedly the most memorized or popular portion of the prayer in the verses that we read is actually the prayer itself in verses 9 through 13. Now, you probably are familiar with this text. You probably have recited it many times. You probably know it simply as the Lord's Prayer. It is often also called the model prayer. But there is much more to what has been said here in these verses than just the extent of that prayer. Other than the model prayer, we see there's some things before it. So we go back now to verse 5 and begin where we had started the reading to find out what the Lord tells us regarding prayer. And we see that all these verses sometimes are overlooked, but they're critical in having us to have a better understanding of prayer and of its effectiveness. So we'll go back to verse 5 through 8 
And we note that Jesus tells the disciples and us here as well that we should always pray in private. He mentions the word secret, to pray in private or in secret. And just when you're doing so, simply pour out your heart to God the Father. Yeah, this leading segment, verses 5 through 8, is often, I think, neglected. Because we want to get to the actual prayer itself. And in due time today, again, we will. Which again, verses 9 through 13. But verses 5 through 8 is very instrumental in leading us into having a very effective prayer life. It's an important step in all of our Christian lives when it comes to prayer. Because essentially in verse 5, as we go back to the very beginning, Jesus is telling us that we should not pray like a certain group of people. It's the hypocrites, in fact, he mentions, which is perhaps most likely the Pharisees, who's doing only the prayer where they can be noticed to bring recognition upon themselves. But Jesus also tells us, as he's speaking to disciples that we receive today, to not use vain repetition of words and phrases trying to impress other people. He says, for if you do any of these things, they've already received their own reward. Which basically means that their sole recognition that they sought from the people is itself their reward. Now, you think it may seem strange to think that people would maybe do something like that. It may happen until today, but in that time, obviously it must have been happening. Because in Jesus' day, apparently the hypocrites, again, perhaps the Pharisees, would plan their day so to be in some particular location where everybody would see them. Some prominent attention-getting spot upon the street corner or on the square. When it comes time to pray, they would just be visible for everybody to see. And they would lift their hands to God in like complete devotion and recite things over and over and over again to get all the recognition that they wanted to receive. And he says, for that, you received your reward. I guess your reward was the fact that you're being recognized as a prayerful person. It's similar, if you will, to what he wrote earlier in the chapter, in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 6, he also started talking about the people who give for others to notice. Yeah, in the beginning of this particular chapter, in verse 2 especially, he says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Again, they're only doing it for show. He says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So essentially, picture the fact that people go to the corner or to on the street, some prominent location, either giving in the synagogue or praying for others to see, and they're wanting the recognition. They're play acting, making everyone aware of their giving or of their powerful praying and their great devotion to giving to God, supposedly. So as a result of their look at me, what I've done, Jesus says they've been paid in full. As in God will not give them any further reward. Or perhaps meaning that whatever they may have prayed for in that moment, it will go unfulfilled. So maybe the question as we hear that would be, why? I mean, the fact that someone would pray and God would think, okay, you've got your reward. I'm going to honor that. Why would their reward be void? Or why would their prayer as they lifted it to the Lord in whatever manner, why would it go unfulfilled? 
And I believe the answer is because that prayer, he calls them hypocrites. I mean, they're just play acting. It's not meaningful. It's shallow. It's empty. It's void. It's just all for show. That's all it is. And he calls them on a carpet for it. It's like he's saying to his disciples, don't be like these posers. That's a worthless prayer. They're only seeking attention for themselves rather than truly wanting to communicate with God and honor and respect him. Eugene Peterson writes the message. It's a paraphrase of the scriptures, but he's spot on when he says this verse relates this. He says, and when you come before God, do not turn it into a theatrical production. All these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for stardom. Do you think God sits in a box seat? I mean, he says it a little differently, but he's spot on with what he's saying. That we shouldn't do it for theatrics. We shouldn't do it for recognition. And because that some people are, apparently in that day and time, and maybe even in times of today, he tells us then how we should go about praying. Verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And when your father who sees in secret, he'll reward you. Note again, verse 6 tells us that our prayer is not for public display or for recognition to receive for the fact that we're praying. It tells us to do it in secret, to do it only in secret, just you and God. In that moment of prayer, just you and God together. So as we hear that, then I'm processing my mind like maybe you are. And the question that comes to me now is, well, does this mean that we never pray in public? Winita talked about how her business will often pray for people who come into the car wash. They have a particular need. She explained to how they prayed and the guy went into remission. Glory to God. So does that mean we never then pray? As verse 6 tells us, do we never pray in public? And the answer there is no. I mean, there's going to be some times where we are going to pray corporately together or in public places. I mean, it happened there, but it happens in church, obviously. We're a family here together. We're praying corporately. It happens during times of fellowship. It can happen later if you go dine at your favorite restaurant. Hopefully you'll leave your table in a moment of prayer before you bless the food. So it can happen there in that particular moment. There is even prayer. It doesn't happen so much today as it used to. There used to be prayer always before a football game in high school. It doesn't really happen today, but there's still time public corporate prayer is done before a sporting event, particularly if you go to a racing event. They always lead in prayer. But what Jesus is saying to his disciples is that time of intimate personal prayer is always then in a private time alone with the Father. There is a need for public corporate prayer, yes. But that personal, intimate time where you're just pouring out your heart to God is in that time when you're alone with the Father. A great illustration of this is with the movie War Room. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, but back in 2015, the Kendrick brothers made this new movie at that time. It was a Christian movie. It was called War Room. 
but War Room was a movie based upon a family that is doing exceptionally well in life. I mean, they've got a lot of wonderful things. They've got this great extravagant house. The husband has a great job with lots of income. The wife is happy. They've got this beautiful child. Everything seems to be going well for the family. However, during the movie, the husband's job seems to have a lady to he's interested in. So all of a sudden now the movie has a sudden turn because now the father, the husband, his name is Tony, he's contemplating an affair with someone at his workplace. He's considering adultery. However, his wife, Elizabeth, finds out about the other woman's intentions with her husband, Tony. And as she's considering all this, she runs, not coincidentally, as a woman named Miss Clara. And Miss Clara is a prayer warrior. And then she leads Elizabeth into the power of prayer. And she tells Elizabeth, and not so much a method or way to pray, but she tells Elizabeth, you've got to have some time where you find yourself alone with God, pour out your heart to, your heart to him, and just let it go to God about what's happening. Be a prayer person. So Miss Clara convinces Elizabeth to take everything out of her closet at her house, and let that be her war room or her prayer room. She completely takes everything out of the closet. She obviously has a husband, has a different closet. But she has her closet to be her war room, her prayer room, where she's now in secret, nobody knowing that she's poured out her heart to God the Father. I mean, the whole point illustration is that people often want to know with what's happening here in this text and with our prayer life, is there a certain technique, a certain way? I mean, Miss Clara could have told Elizabeth, there's a certain way you got to do this. But she simply told her, you just need to pour out your heart to God. Find a quiet place alone. Clear it out. Just you and God. And pray. But you know, I think a lot of times with good intentions, we seek out maybe a formula or a method in which we should pray. And I think it's good intentions, but we got to be careful. Because if we narrow it down to a systematic order in which you're praying, I think we could be guilty of times trying to manipulate God, and that never wants to happen. What we must always remember is to pray with our heart. And never to try to pray to impress. N.T. Wright actually states that prayer is deeply meaningful. It is not a magic formula. It is not an abracadabra which plugs into some secret charm or spell. Charles Stanley, one of John's favorite preachers, says effective prayer is not magic. It's not about speaking the right string of words or using the correct formula. Instead, it's about communicating on a heart-to-heart -heart level with God of the universe. So this first point we're trying to make here is that as we go back to verses 5 through 8 before we actually get into the prayer, is that it's not about a certain method. It's not about a certain technique. It's all about coming before God, recognizing him as the almighty, powerful, sovereign God, and just give our heart to him. Just pour it out to God in that time when we're in secret and we're alone with God. Yes, there's a time for public prayer. But that most personal, intimate prayer is pouring our heart to God 
in that quiet time with him. It's not about a formula. Not about a technique. But as you hear me say that, if you're like me, you're thinking, well, then wait a minute. Jesus says that's the way we should pray, but then he leads us into a model prayer. So if it's not about technique, it's not about method, then why does Jesus instruct how to pray with this prayer we're about to read again in verses 9 through 13? Why is he doing that then? So the answer we must consider before we read the prayer, most of all, because why would he do such a thing then? It's not about formula, not about technique, about pouring out our heart to God. So why would he tell us this is how you need to pray? Well, the answer is twofold. First, remember, as already mentioned earlier, people were receiving the wrong idea about prayer. In that first century time, some people had developed long list with names of pagan gods. And they would go about reciting their list, hoping to correctly pronounce the names of those gods. And their gods hereby hear that name and give them the wish that they wanted. That it would be thereby granted by listening, listening by, by giving that name and pronouncing it right. And they would try to correct that. I mean, other people would also just constantly repeat phrases or syllables in an attempt to order or re receive favor of the gods. So he recognizes that was a practice of the time, and he condemned such worldly practice and pagan ideas to show that true prayer, here's one reason he does it, true prayer depends on what is in the heart more than what comes across the tongue. So he offers a model for the prayer. That's one reason. The second reason, more simply perhaps, is because the disciples ask him. In Luke 11, chapter 1, chapter 11, verse 1, doesn't, Matthew doesn't record disciples asking, but Luke does. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. So the disciples asked him, so he teaches them a way in which to pray. Which points us back then, verses 9 through 13, which is the central part itself of the text and also then the Lord's Prayer. Now, I'm going to recite what I memorized a long time ago in my favorite translation, which is the King James. So here it is. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. If you know it, say it with me. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. What a powerful prayer. That prayer has recited probably more than any other prayer in the history of Christianity. It's a very powerful prayer. There are sports teams that simply pray this prayer before they go in the field or go on the court or whatever they're doing. They pray this prayer. It's a very powerful prayer. It's just a Lord's Prayer. It's just a model. But rather interestingly, if you start to dissect it like we're about to do today, you're going to find something remarkable happens. It's rather interesting to me that none of the modern translations, I memorized this a long time ago like maybe you did, none of the modern translations, the English Standard we read from, the NIV, which is extremely popular, the New Living Translation, none of these modern translations have what's called 
the doxology. The doxology is the ending of verse 13. It's the, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. No modern translation has that wording, the doxology. Only the King James, the New King James, and the New American Standard includes the doxology. I like it. I like reciting it in that way. The New American Standard even puts it in italics. So to me, it's special when you recite the doxology. But as I look at the modern translations and look at the older translations, I begin to wonder why. Why would some translations vary on such a remarkable, powerful, important prayer? Why would it vary? Why would they not all include the doxology? And I consider then the words of Robert Mounts, who begins to explain. He says, that portion is not found in any Greek manuscript before the 5th century. Apparently, it was a Jewish practice to end every prayer with a doxology, even when there was nothing of that nature in the text. He said the doxology reflects the major strands of David's prayer in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. So essentially, if you hear what Mounts is saying in his study of the scriptures, he's saying it appears that this was a later addition to what we have as the Lord's Prayer. But don't let that upset you. Don't let that insertion and whatever it may have been made bother you. I mean, putting aside the observation with the doxology, let's return to the main point. Here then that Jesus is giving his disciples and for us then an example of a prayer. And the prayer should direct us right into the approach of God. We should always want to have the right approach with God. And the right approach is simply this, submitting yourselves completely to him. And whatever that moment is, whether it be private, personal, or in corporate public prayer, submit yourselves fully before him, recognizing that he is the God. The only one in which we should be praying to. And then coming humbly before him. Submit yourselves completely to him in whatever circumstance. And then humbly come before him recognizing that he has the power to grant the prayer. So let us not be bothered by the doxology, whether it is or whether it isn't. Just recognize he is God. And he is the one that we pray to. So with that, we go back once more now to the prayer. And we now ask ourselves in our time remaining, what then does this prayer tell us about our regular approach to God? Again, five powerful verses of prayer. What does it tell us about our approach we should have to God in prayer? And the first one is this. Notice that everything is set with the very first sentence of the prayer. Everything is set within our calling God Father. When Jesus says to pray our Father, he reveals a dramatic new relationship that made possible between God and us as human beings. The Aramaic Abba that stands in association with the Greek Pater was an intimate and affectionate title that children used when speaking to their father. So now he says, redress him as father. I mean, 
Abba became so embedded in the minds of the first century Christians that it's included in Scripture. It's found in Mark 14, 36, Romans 8, 15, and Galatians 4, 6. For Jews in the day in which Jesus was living, the title for God as Abba went far back into considering all the way to the Exodus, rescuing Israel from the Exodus and saying, Israel is my son, my firstborn father, God, thank you, Abba. So with the first application we're pointing out towards prayer, we need to recognize that we pray only to our Father in a loving manner. Abba, Father. We pray to our Father. And we should not take that lightly. So the question really now becomes, what does it mean to you personally? What does it mean to you to pray to our Father in heaven? means it's something meaningful. When you begin to pray, Father, Abba, Father, Pater, is it something meaningful to you? Or is it just mere words to begin a prayer to maybe remove the awkward silence that sometimes happens in corporate prayer? And when you say, Father, when you begin to pray, say, Father in heaven, does it sense the reverence of his name? I mean, there's so many times in life where God's name is truly taken in vain. God's name is so abused today, it's not even funny. It's actually something that we should take offense to, the way God's name is used today. Too many people use it way too casually, without any regard or intention to want to honor his name. It's not majestic at all in the way that God's name is used today. I mean, here he's saying, start your prayer, just call me Father. The point is this, that when we pray to our Father, when he says pray to your Father, when we say Father in heaven, it should be something we say, not with just our lips, but it should be meaningful. It should be something extraordinary. The first petition of the Lord's Prayer asks the name of God, Father, to be revered and to be held in honor. God's name stands for his character as well as he revealed himself throughout all of history. To hallow God's name is to treat it with high and holy regard for the person that God is himself. So in short then, basically what I'm saying is the phrase, our Father in heaven, indicates that God is not only majestic and holy, but also personal loving. I mean, he literally is our Father in heaven. So the first line, the model prayer, is a statement of praise and commitment to hallow or honor God's name. And we can honor God's name by being careful in the way we use it and to always use it respectfully. To use God's name lightly means we are not remembering God's holiness. So that's the first thing that we should recognize as we begin our approach to prayer, do what we can find in this model that we should always revere his name to hold in high honor and respect the majestic, holy God that he is. And a second thing we can find about a regular approach to God is to recognize verse 10, is that the heart of the prayer itself is that God's will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. Note that 
Although the kingdom came in the life and the ministry of Jesus, it awaits its fulfillment in the second coming. Which means that we live right now in the days between the the day that he came to the end of the day he comes when he will return. And we acknowledge all his sovereignty in that time between. And we should recognize his sovereignty and pray simply for his will to be done and to simply then submit and to follow. We pray his will be done and recognize his sovereignty, his power. So if you're thinking then maybe, well, okay, I'm going to pray. I'm going to recognize God the Father. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for whatever it is. I'm going to say, God, your will be done. Does that mean we're just saying, God, your will be done and leave it up to fate? Well, the answer to that is no. It's not fate. When we pray your will be done, which is what the model is telling us, we pray your will be done, we are not resigning ourselves to fate, but to praying that God's perfect purposes will be accomplished in this world as in the next. When we say, God, your will be done, it's essentially submitting ourselves to his rule and to his authority. When we pray God's will be done, we yield ourselves to recognize God's authority. It's a humble admission that he knows better than any of us do of what we need and what is right for us to receive. We only think we know. There is so many more wants lifted up in prayer than the actual need. So God recognizes the want and the need and separates them. And when we say your will be done, it's a humble mission of God. You know what it is I need. I'm too ignorant to know what I need, but God, you do. So let your will be done. But it also announces our intention to obey him. Whatever it is, God, your will be done. I will receive it, be glad for it, and to follow and obey. Remember, it's not a wish list. It's not a wish list at all. It's not a Christmas wish list, which is a lot of people think it is to pray to God. But it's not that at all. I mean, it's not like when when I was younger, I remember the J.C. Penney catalog the Montgomery Ward catalog, the Sears Christmas catalog. You remember these things? When I got them as a child, they came in the mail. My mama put it on the table. I would see it. I would get a marker, open up the pages, and circle all the things I wanted. It was littered with all kinds of circles of what I wanted. I didn't need it, but I wanted it. But today, they don't have a Sears catalog. J.C. Penney's going bankrupt. Montgomery Ward, I don't even know who they were, right? People under the age of 50 probably didn't have heard of Montgomery Ward. But they know Toys R Us. When my kids were younger, by the way, Toys R Us is going to make a comeback. But when my kids were younger, they didn't get those catalogs I got. They got the Toys R Us catalog. And it just so happened to be, we'd lay on the counter, and they would take their marker and begin to circle the things they wanted. They didn't need it. They had plenty. But they would make their wish list with the Toys R Us catalog they got in the mail. Now today, well, again, Toys R Us may be making a comeback, but today there are no catalogs. You know what kids do today? They get online and they make a list. They'll do like a wedding. You know, when you begin to have a wedding or a shower, 
you can pre-register things or register for people to go and find out what you want. That's what kids do today. They still do it, but it's a more high-technique method. It's the same principle. They still have all these wants. They make their wish list. And so many people today think that's what prayer is, a wish list. But it's anything but that. Prayer is not a wish list. I mean, listen, God is not a genie. He's not Robin Williams and Aladdin, all right? You don't rub him on the belly at some point and say, God, grant me this. He's not a genie. So when we pray, we pray then for God's will be done. Whatever it is, we pray for God's will be done. And now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Let's put verse 8 back in the picture here. Verse 8 is not in the model prayer. Grant you, verses 9 through 13 is the prayer. But consider verse 8. Because verse 8 tells us your father, our father, knows the things we're going to need before we ask him. So now you may be thinking if we pray according to God's will, and verse 8 reminds us that God knows we're going to pray, we're going to ask for, then why even bother to pray? That's a good question. And we should remember then, the point of prayer isn't to get what we want, but to nurture that relationship with God. Prayer was never meant to inform God of something he already knew. It's always to nurture that relationship with him, to help us grow. God doesn't need any growth. I mean, he's God. We need growth spiritually in our Christian lives. So prayer can help nurture that relationship with God. Wednesday evening, I mentioned earlier of how we were in our study of Hannah. Hannah has a prayer in the beginning of 1 Samuel in chapter 1, and she has a remarkably different prayer in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. I mean, she prayed for Samuel, first of all, and then she receives Samuel. She, she praises God, secondly, after she receives Samuel. But in our time of discussion, we began talking about prayer because there's a prayer in chapter 1 and a prayer in chapter 2. That Hannah has. But we came to this that I printed and copied from Wednesday night into today concerning prayer because we need to hear this. That prayer is an important part of the Christian life, it's not a wish list. It's the way we communicate with the Lord and praise Him. Further, prayer is also a way to strengthen our relationship with God. Ultimately, the main purpose of prayer is worship. When we pray to the Lord, recognizing him for who he is and what he has done, it is an act of worship. Warren Worsby, the scholar, states, The immediate purpose of prayer is the accomplishing of God's will on earth. The ultimate purpose of prayer is the eternal glory of God. Now, those are carefully given words about how we should consider prayer into our life. And then our approach to prayer. Our approach to prayer should always be for God's will be done and not a selfish wish list. So then thirdly and finally, then we have another consideration of what does prayer tell us about our regular approach to God? And it is this. That prayer to God acknowledges him as our sustainer, as our provider, and as our deliverer. It's verses 11 through 13 where we have in the prayer, give us this day, Lord, 
our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Note, if you will, that verse 11 makes a shift in the prayer. And it makes a shift for everyday matters of concern. And the first request is a food, is a bread. Of course, the background here is probably the provision that God had given the Israelites during their time of Exodus with the manna back in Exodus 16. But the point is this, that God responds to our needs day by day. It's a misconception to think that we provide for ourselves. We don't provide anything for ourselves. Every blessing that we have in our life is from God. And we ignore some of these blessings. The first breath we took this morning was a blessing from God. The first step we made this morning getting out of bed was from God. The first sip of coffee or whatever liquid refreshment we had this morning was a gift from God. The first thing we ate this morning was a blessing, a gift from God. God responds to our needs day by day. We must simply trust God daily to provide what he knows that we need. So when we pray, give us our food, we're acknowledging that God is our sustainer and our provider. But there's also verse 12, which says to lead, to forgive us our debts and forgive our debtors. So the next petition is for forgiveness. And perhaps then as the word in the prayer is debt. That is the right word to use. That's the correct terminology we need to have in life. I mean, the Greek word employed here is referring to debt that one owes and is due, which was figuratively then of sin as a moral debt. And this, since we owe complete God obedience, we need everything to God, we should completely obey. Every failure is a sin. And sin then puts us in debt with them. So debt is the right word to use. Forgive us our debts, our sin, because we are in debt to him. We cannot overlook the fact the request for forgiveness is based upon the willingness also to forgive others. It's not in the prayer, but it's an important part of what's read in these verses. Verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others your trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But here it comes. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. We are in debt to him, and we should forgive others because we've been forgiven. Essentially saying the heart that will not open to forgive others will remain closed when God's own forgiveness is offered, according to these two verses. It's added on to the end of the prayer. And then finally, verse 13 tells us, lead us not into temptation which means that we do not lead us to fall into a trial so difficult that we fail, but deliver us from the evil one who tears down and destroys, who manipulates us, who deceives us. Interesting question that comes up with this particular segment of the prayer is does God lead us into temptation? And the answer, of course, is no. God does not tempt us. So Jesus basically instructs us to pray to show our dependence on him, to help us overcome, to persevere, and may even to endure. The fact is we're all going to sin. We're all going to fall times subject to the evil one. 
and we can have help overcoming that truly with God. So then, we need to recognize that staying constantly connected to God in prayer will help us always overcome, persevere, and overcome anything that comes to our lives. So we have then the model prayer. That we have the Lord's Prayer. What's he telling us? He's telling us in our approach, we should have everything come with God, the Father. He's telling us that we should have the heart of prayer to be God's will be done. And he's also telling us that we need to, in our prayer, acknowledge him as sustainer, provider, and deliverer. Here's the thing as we begin to end. I know it's long, but listen. Teaching how to pray is essential in our lives. It could be debated, is there a wrong way to pray? And that debate could go on for years, and we could talk about it for hours. We don't have that much time. We could spend a lot more time on the topic of prayer. It's a great topic to consider. It's something we should all do in our lives every second that we possibly can. Wherever we are, we can go to God in prayer. But we'll leave you with something to consider. Because not coincidentally, yesterday morning, I found myself trying to put a finale on the message. And I pick up a devotional. It's written by Dr. David Jeremiah in this concerning prayer. I'm thinking that needs to be said as we come to completion of the message pertaining to prayer. So here's what he said in reference to the daily devotion that we apply today. He says, if your faith is wavering, try offering a prayer in Mark 9.24 where it expresses our need for stronger faith. So now you're wondering, what's it say in Mark 9, 24, right? So here's what it says in Mark 24. Before we read it, let me kind of give you an insight. It's about a man who's desperately wanting a healing for his son. He's got an evil spirit, the son does, and he's wanting a healing upon it. So Mark 9, chapter 20, verse says this. The boy, he brought the boy to him, to Jesus. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood. It has often cast him into a fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, the man saying to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Well, look in verse 23. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. So the father says this. I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus says all things are possible if you believe. So the Father then recognizes that he needs to get on his knees and pray at that moment saying, I believe, Legion, I believe, but help my unbelief. The point is if you're ever wavering in life, ever have any doubt of your faith, then pray what's in Mark 9.24. Just simply pray God, I believe, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. If you ever find yourself wavering in doubt about your faith, just pray that simple prayer and ask God to help you. He'll hear your request. He'll know your motive. He'll know your heart. And he will help you as he always does when we pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message concerning prayer. So much insight here to receive, Lord. So much we already know about prayer. 
Perhaps some of these things today, Lord, we already heard about and knew. But in that regard, Lord, it's probably right that we hear it again today. Because we always, we always, Lord, just seek help and to pray. And Lord, we recognize there's only one to pray to. And we pray to you now. And we ask, Lord, to hear our prayer. We pray for our church. We pray for everybody here today, Lord. We pray for those on our prayer list. And we pray, Lord, according to what we know to pray for, that your will be done for whatever it is. And we pray, Lord, you help us to accept it. But, Lord, we also pray for anybody who may be here today who has never made a decision to accept you personally and intimately in their life. We pray, Lord, perhaps your spirit would provoke them now to lead them, Lord, into receiving you into their life this day, this time. So thank you, Lord, for the message you have today. And thank you for the way we can communicate you, you in prayer. We love you. We praise you. We love you, Lord, so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.